Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello and welcome to the Bobby Podcast. My name is Bobby Kazmaier and for the past year and a half, I've been uploading, creating content on TikTok, Instagram, using this podcast to showcase my journey in eating disorder recovery after overcoming and dealing with several eating disorders over the past few years. Um, I decided to launch this podcast in August of 2021 because I really wanted to find a longer form of content to to talk about ed recovery and the the ups and downs of it and how to navigate through recovery and the just everything about it because i I love talking about this stuff after dealing with one for so long um dealing with an ed for so long i love talking about this stuff and inspiring and helping people because that's i feel like that's like my it's been my true calling um you know after struggling for so long um, so I launched this podcast. I've uh, grown a following of 200,000 people on TikTok, which still blows my mind to this day. Just like I said, creating content on ED recovery, food freedom, all that just good, great stuff. Um, it's been an incredible journey. Um, I, I really, I, I really love doing this stuff. Um, it's been, it's been amazing. And I love, I'm just going to keep continuing to create content. I love recording podcasts. I love posting on TikTok. I love helping other people. It's truly amazing. Um, and I also just want to reiterate the fact that I am not a professional. Um, I'm not a nutritionist. I am not a recovery coach. I am not licensed. I'm not certified. So anything I say in this podcast is simply from my experience. I'm not offering weight loss advice. I'm not offering anything that I'm not, I'm not trying to tell you to do anything. This is simply just me talking about my experiences in ED recovery and how I've been able to navigate them and learn from them and hopefully help to help and inspire other people. So I hope you enjoy the episode and have a great day. Today, I am joined by Vanessa Gorelkin. Vanessa's practice aligns with eating disorder recovery work as she is passionate about helping people to unlock their unique talents and inherit strengths to address inseparable issues of body and mind towards solid recovery. She has a master's degree in occupational therapy from New York University. Vanessa has over 25 years of professional experience. She's worked in executive management and direct practice roles. Her career work has allowed Vanessa to apply her expertise and passion to help people improve the quality of their lives. In this episode, Vanessa explains how we can plug distress tolerance skills into recovery, along with helpful mindful eating exercises for those feeling stuck in recovery. It was an absolute pleasure speaking with Vanessa. Her professional insight and advice was second to none, and I really think this episode will leave you in a better position to succeed in your recovery than you were going into this episode. Okay, so we have Vanessa here. Vanessa, how are you doing today? Thank you for coming on. I really appreciate it. I'm doing well. Thank you so much for having me on your podcast. I'm excited to chat today. Yeah, I'm totally excited to get into everything about what you're all about. And for those who don't know, what you're all about. Can you kind of uh, explain what you do and how you got to the point you're at right now? 
Yeah, well, that's a long story since I've been a professional for like close to 30 years, but (laughs) I am a um, licensed therapist. I'm an occupational therapist in Arizona, and um, I have kind of a wide background, but relative to your podcast, I've always had an interest in helping people who have eating disorders or disordered eating patterns to live their lives to the fullest. And um, I'm now in private practice where I work for myself, like we're meeting, you know, um, via video, which is how I do it. Um, When I meet with my patients, I come from a medical model, but uh, the bottom line is that, uh, I wrote to you about your podcast because I said, oh, I think I have some input for you about distress tolerance, because I think that's a really big deal for eating disorder recovery and folks who are trying to maintain the recovery or even get there. That's incredible. I I mentioned to you a couple minutes ago before we started recording, I love having professionals on the podcast because I learn as much as the audience will. I learn so much from so many amazing people like like yourself. Um, So is there any particular motivation for you to, uh, for you that led to you working with those in eating disorder recovery? Well, you know, I mean, I grew up, um, in the 1980s and nineties, um, which had a really, uh, intense, I would say, uh, uh, focus on what, what might've been called back then waif culture. And, you know, for my whole life, I would say that, I personally had a lot of struggles with my weight and eating and disordered eating, which I can recognize now looking way back, like I was never diagnosed as having an eating disorder. And I I don't really think it was anything to that clinical level. However, it was always an interest of mine, because frankly, I think it was something that was really rough for me to kind of cope with and learn about. And now as people are um, you know, kind of coming together more with intuitive eating and eating disorders are being, being more widely diagnosed. Um, it just uh, seemed like a natural fit for me in terms of the work that I do with people, which is really about helping people to live their lives in a way that feels comfortable and peaceful and safe. I love that. That's awesome. Um, and I think you bring up a good point or like when you mentioned you grew up in the eighties and nineties that I've, <laughs> I've watched, I've seen a ton of just content and just, I've done some research about mm-hmm. that period of time and how that was big in like fad diets and like fat was really bad for you. And just, there's all these just, you know, ridiculous, uh, fad diets that went around during that period of time. So I'm sure it must yeah. be tough at times to be growing up during that, um, era. So for sure. Um, Can I mention another, is it okay if I mention another podcast on your podcast? Of course. Of course. Yeah. So I have like a super favorite podcast called maintenance phase. I don't know if you've ever heard of it or if it's been I recommended. Have. Yeah. Have. And, um, I, I am telling you, I think I did every single diet that they have ever <laughs> talked about, including the most, re- we're recording this at the end of August and they just did one on French women don't get fat. And that's a book that came out in the nineties or early two thousands. And I re- specifically remember reading that and being like, that that's the answer. That's the way. And but I had that with every book I ever read. Cause I was very, um, right. I don't know, porous about that. If you will, I just absorbed everything, anything to get the answer, so to speak. But can you talk about yeah. some of the content that was in that book? I'm actually really curious. Um, okay. Well, trigger warning. Okay. Because there's really a lot about starving yourself in there. It's like you start out, um, uh, during the first weekend and you make yourself, (laughs) excuse me, like basically a soup. That's like a tea with leeks in it. And you just have that. And then you're just supposed to basically (laughs) not eat very much. And and that's how you're supposed to be 
um, some perfect magical weight and everything like that. And I think you and I could both agree that, um, or I hope we would, that there really isn't a perfect magical weight. I have been all weights myself personally. And um, until I decided to stop criticizing myself, I never really was um, happy with myself. Ultimately, there was always some, you know, lump or bump or thing that I didn't like or, you know, shaping that I didn't care for. Right. Because when you become addicted to the number on the scale, you never end up feeling satisfied. You, you feel like you can always get lower, always go lower, which is, yeah. That's just, so true. Right. And that scale is such a trap because I can tell you for years and years, and I, I listened to one, I think it was, um, your podcast was entitled like how I gave up the scale or whatever. I definitely gave up the scale. I even saw a doctor yesterday for my regular checkup, got on the scale backwards. I just said, I don't want to hear it. I'm not interested in that number. That's your business, not mine. And, you know, it was all good. And thankfully doctor's offices now are okay with that. But I think if I had pulled that 10 years ago, they would have been like, what are you talking about? You know? So, yeah. Yeah, it's actually, yeah, it's funny you mentioned that because I actually went to the doctors a couple of days ago and that was, I knew that was going to come. And I mean, I, I, I let it happen. I, 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 cause I'm at a point where I can like, even if I see the number, I know it doesn't mean shit. Like I know mm-hmm. that there's so many factors that go into the number, like what the number on the scale reads and mm-hmm. you're not defined by that number. That doesn't define your worth. That doesn't, you know? Um, and I, obviously I think that's great that you can now like, like, like you did, you know, turn around, just ask them not to say the number because I've, I've heard about, I've heard so many people do that. Mm-hmm. And that makes a huge difference because, um, so many, so many, uh, individuals, like when they're at the doctor's office, they, they can feel like the stigma around them. Like they can feel themselves being judged, um, unfortunately by, you know, uh, by the doctors themselves based on what the numbers said. And like, they, mm-hmm. yeah. So I, I totally, that's awesome that you can do that now. And that yeah. more accepting of that. I've had it both ways too, um, because, you know, I, I don't try to make a secret of this. When I was in my 20s, the big mental health issue for me, and that has continued in my life, was major depressive disorder, which, um, you know, for me, and now it's well managed. I take medication, I take care of myself, I do a whole bunch of stuff. And these, that's actually something that's, um, I'll say in a professional terms, like comorbid with eating disorders sometimes or anxiety disorder or OCD. So um, some of the people listening to your podcast might relate to major depressive disorder. But um, the first time I had an episode, I had no appetite and it was not fun actually. And I just dropped a whole bunch of weight very quickly. And when I went to go for my annual checkup that year, I, um, the, the aide and, or whatever they're called, the medical assistant in the office was like, oh my God, you lost 20 pounds or something. And she said, that's amazing. Like, how did you do it? And I, I was like, well, I kind of like almost died. So it wasn't really a good way. It wasn't really fun, but they congratulate you a lot of the times. I mean, how would she know why I had like lost a whole bunch of weight, so to speak? Um, it, it was a, it was a bad moment, but it was like a kind of a teaching moment, even when I was much younger. Yeah, exactly. That's, that's why I never comment on the way anyone <laughs> yeah. looks at Cause yeah, you, you really never know. And, uh, you, you just never know. And it's crazy that, cause like when I went through it myself and I lost uh, a large amount of weight, when I was first going through these mm-hmm. unhealthy disordered habits, I would get nothing but compliments and that further mm-hmm. pushes you to keep going and like, you want to keep getting that feedback, that positive feedback, because you never got that growing up. And like, yeah, it leads you down a really dangerous path. And that's why I'd never comment on anyone if they look, if their appearance looks different than last time I saw them. I don't want to say anything because you, you just never know. And yeah. 
So it's true. And it can be really triggering for people as well. And so, and the other thing is, you know, in one of the uh, parts of my career, I worked in a cancer center and oftentimes people lose a lot of weight from being ill. And so it's like, if you say to, if you congratulate somebody for a big weight loss, and if you thought they needed to lose weight before I'm putting air quotes around me saying that you might be complimenting their illness or their eating disorder, or, you know, so I agree with you. I think it's much better when you see a friend you haven't seen in a while or somebody or family member, and you think they look great. You can, you know, say a lot of things like, Hey, how's your life? You're looking you know, really healthy. That can even be triggering actually. So maybe just kind of keep away from the, um, <laughs> the looks remarks all in all. Right, exactly. Just stay away from the describing words. Just, yeah. That's right. <laughs> oh. You're right. You're right. I'm sorry. I like, put my foot in the mouth, but yeah, I usually try very hard not to comment on what, yeah. on what people look like. And I even set limits with my family, um, now because, you know, I grew up in a family where dieting, um, weight loss, calories were constantly discussed. So I've set that limit with my closest family members. Like this is not on the table for discussion when we get together. We're not talking about weight, calories, um, how fattening something is or whatever. And that's um, made things better too. It's actually how I do distress tolerance, which is like, (laughs) you know, I try to structure the environment a little bit. Well, that's a, that's a perfect segue because I was just going to ask you about uh, the distress tolerance skills you mentioned earlier, if you can just dive into exactly what those are and um, yeah, let's, let's, let's hear them. Yeah. Well, I mean, let's start by saying um, I, as an occupational therapist, occupational therapists are really broadly based. And so some of your listeners may think of occupational therapists and either not know what we are or think, oh, that uh, I had OT when I was like five years old in school, or, you know, I saw an OT working um, in a nursing home. Well, but the basic idea of occupational therapy is um, one of the taglines of the American Occupational Therapy Association a few years ago, I still keep it, is living your life to the fullest. Like we help people live their lives to the fullest. And what goes really nicely with that um, are a couple of techniques. One of them is dialectical behavioral therapy. And so I have training in that and um, speaking uh, in the framework of DBT, um, talking about distress tolerance is a really big thing, right? So With folks who have eating disorders, a lot of the times um, distress comes up. And if the eating disorder is very active, what do you do? You go into the behavior, right? So it might be starving, it might be purging, it might be overexercising and what have you. So coming up with a plan um, as to what to do when things are getting stressful is a very good um, distress management technique. And trying to structure your environment so stress can be limited is also a great uh, distress management tool. And finally, last one is um, doing some work ahead of time, mainly through mindfulness or meditation or relaxation to try to kind of build your ability to just naturally go right into a relaxing mode if you are upset or distressed. Those are all tools. All right, those are those all are very helpful <laughs> tools. Um, how long typically does it take for the, your, the clients that you work with to develop and not necessarily master these skills, but, you know, make, make them a habit. How long does it take typically? Well, you know, it depends on the, the depth of the disorder, um, the length of time it's been going on, and especially on the insight. So oftentimes when people have disordered eating patterns, they're not really clear that it is a disorder because society really kind of 
reinforces behavior that is eating disordered and um, exercise behavior that's disordered and so on. And so if the insight level is high, the motivation is high, um, and the participation is high as well, um, people can see results like I would say fairly instantly. Do we cure their eating disorder? No. But, you know, I'm thinking back to somebody that I worked with um, who was uh, working on her eating. She had come out of the hospital. I started working with her when she came out of the hospital to continue her outpatient care. And she still was having a lot of panic attacks. And um, I gave her uh, my best tool for panic attacks, um, which for some reason she hadn't absorbed or they hadn't really gone through it in her treatment. Um, and she was like from one week to the next, much better. She had kind of applied this technique and I'll tell you, it's not a secret. <laughs> so the, for panic attack. So, um, and let's just say sometimes people call anxiety attacks, panic attacks, but a panic attack is something where no matter what you do, if you try to think your way through it, it's not going to worse work. Like your, your heart is pounding, you're sweating, your, your palms are sweaty. Maybe you feel nauseous. That's a panic attack. Like no one could say, calm down to you and even have any impact whatsoever. You following me? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And so it's like a terrible tidal wave that comes over you. And what do we usually do? When, um, I think most people can experience, can like imagine this experience. What do we want to do? We want to make it stop. We want to like clamp down and be like, I'm not going to be upset and try to calm ourselves down, well, that's the worst thing that we could do. So if you start having a panic attack, let's say that you are um, in a situation where, um, I'll give an example that might be one that could upset people. Like you feel like you ate too much. You ate beyond what you were supposed to eat, what your restrictive level of eating is. And then you start to panic and you start to think like, I have to go do something about this. I have to get rid of this and whatever. Um, Telling yourself to calm down in that moment would never work. A much better choice would be to get up on your feet. If you can walk, walk or run, but not like for exercise, but to literally give your body the notion that you're running, that you are actually fighting back because it's a fight or flight reaction. And most of all, do not try to tamp down that response. Just allow it to happen. If you have to cry, you have to scream, do whatever you have to do to have the reaction and let it wash over you. And when you don't resist, it actually gets better faster. So in a sense, you just kind of have to let it happen and that. You you do have to let it happen because it's a physiological reaction. I mean, um, you know, with eating disorders, in a lot of cases, people learn to ignore their physiology. They learn to ignore hunger signals or begin to misinterpret those as danger signals. And so reprogramming that sort of neurophysiological response takes time and it takes like a conscious effort to let unpleasantness wash over you wow that's all (laughs) that's that's amazing stuff that's it's interesting to just hear how just how it all works inside of our systems and how we have to relearn all these basic human functions just like hunger signals and fullness cues and all that stuff because yeah you're right because like when when you're Mm -hmm. consistently telling your body or going against those hunger cues they're going to go away and they're not and it's going to take a long time to bring them back and I, I remember that or I just know that from personal experience, like, you know, going a, quite a long time trying to restrict yourself. And then even like you, you become kind of curious, like, oh, am I actually even hungry right now? Because like, it's just, they seem so thrown off over the years. You just even kind of question it for a second. And you're like, wait, am I actually hungry? Is this just my, is, or did I just throw off my entire body after these past couple of years? Um, yeah. And um, particularly, I, I think that you've talked on your podcast in the past 
about binge eating disorder and how that has been something that you've kind of dealt with. I, I think that's, that's the right thing. Right. Yep, yep, <laughs> and, <yeah>. um, <laughs> and so what, and, and you probably know from your personal experience and I've looked at a lot of your TikToks and everything, um, you know, the more restrictive your behavior is, the more the binge eating um, disordered voice starts getting really loud, right? Because you can't trust, like your physiology can't trust that there's going to be another meal. So this one better be epic. Like I better get it all in. I better eat the whole fridge. And then people, you know, the binge restrict guilt cycle goes around and around. The only way to cut that off is to actually experience the distress actually to overeat and have that moment of, oh my God, you know, I'm suddenly going to, um, whatever it is that you're afraid of from the overeating, I'll suddenly be back where I was, or I'll suddenly um, be a ogre or something like that. Um, you have to tolerate that. And that's tough. We, we as therapists often say to people, let's sit with that. But you know, it's like, how do you sit with that? What, what are you supposed to do is the question. No, yeah, exactly. Because, um, you know, when I would restrict, when I was in the depths of my eating disorder, when I would restrict, after restricting for so long, your body is just create like your body feels like it wants it wants everything at once, and that's where the binge comes in, and it's that everlasting binge restrict cycle. And then, even if you get past to a point, like I, for me, like I physically can't get myself to restrict food ever again. I I, I just can't do it, which is obviously a good thing. I I just can't do it. Um, but I still have. In, in the back of my brain, just these really old mindsets. Like if I were to eat something, um, my brain is still in that mindset of, Oh, you should eat it all right now because you know, I'm not, I don't know when, when you're going to eat again. I don't know. Cause it's just so used to that old mentality. So that's where the binging mindset comes in. Cause it wants you to eat everything right now. Cause it's still not sure if you're going to restrict again, if you're not, um, at least that's my own personal experience. So it's, it's a really just deadly cycle. Like literally it can be, it's just, it's horrible. Yeah. And I, I think what you're describing also is something that is not spoken about um, commonly. And that is this kind of intrusive voice in your brain that's talking to you. Like you were sort of describing it almost like this conversation, like, am I ever going to be able to eat this much again? Maybe I should eat all of this now. And even when you have better behaviors and you're in recovery and you're working on those things, those intrusive voices may still be there. And the struggle can be like, what am I supposed to do with that voice? Does that mean I'm not recovered? Does that mean that I'm still sick? How sick am I? Do I, you know, what am I supposed to do? And the answer to those intrusive voices is that they can exist in there. Um, and you can maybe, again, another distress tolerance tool is write down what you're you know, manifesto of health really is. And then you can refer to that. Like I will eat until I feel satisfied or um, I'm allowed to drink water. I mean, I have had patients who are afraid to drink water because when they get on the scale, they see that show up on, on the scale or I'm allowed to have a pickle because that, even though that would make my weight go up, if I get on the scale, I can still do that and I can survive it. And sort of almost challenging yourself to go through these difficult experiences repeatedly, that's exposure to those. It gets easier. I think you know that actually, because you know, you've put yourself through that. Yes, exactly. And one of the main one of the better tactics I've developed when I was dealing with my my binge eating struggles was in order to overcome them or yeah, in, in order to potentially overcome them, I would become curious about these binge urges that I would experience. Um, instead of dwelling on it, instead of being like, oh, why am I going through this again? Am I, you know, like you just said, like, oh, am I not even recovered? Like, what is happening? I take, take a step back and I question, okay, why am I feeling this way? Am I stressed? Did I, 
have a bad day? Uh, was my food schedule off? Is it was it different today just because of X, Y, Z? Uh, becoming curious about it helped me kind of break it down. And that actually took up time. So as the time went on, that urge slowly went away as I kept thinking about it. Something else I would do is every time I felt an urge, I would record myself and just sit there. And just like over time, uh, doing that over and over again, you'd still just become curious. You think about it. Um, and over time, it gets easier, easier to deal with those urges because you recognize, okay, I'm, I'm fine. I'm just going through this and I'm figuring out why. Mm -hmm. I love that you said you get curious because I think that that's where you like almost put a pause into that potential behavioral cycle. Cause you know, behaviors are and habits are cycles. And so once you start down that familiar path, for example, like in a binge, um, where it's like, okay. And then what, what do we say to ourselves? We say, well, I already did this, so I may as well do that. And just like, I'll start over tomorrow or Monday or what, you know, that's the diet mentality. And it can really intrude upon us when we're trying to manage in the moment, if we haven't been perfect, or if there's an uncertainty that we've been perfect. That's the other part, I think, that's the insidious voice about perfection. Like, am I perfectly recovered? Am I doing it right? You know, am I getting the right advice? Is my therapist saying stuff that's dangerous? Or, you know, it's all these doubts and uncertainties that are painful for people. And, you know, life is uncertain. But I think if you're curious, that's going back to what you were saying, it allows you to put it on pause just long enough to do something like what you were saying. Lots of things. You can do lots of things. Right. Because I, I, I love the quote. Again, I, I always forget where I see it, but I've seen it multiple times. It's like in terms of binge eating, you can either sit with the urge to binge or the guilt of binge eating. And that mm. seems to be a lot because if the urge arises regardless, I'd rather sit with it, become curious about it and figure out why I'm going through it than to act on it, binge, and then feel the shame and the guilt that comes with it. I'd rather sit with the urge for X amount of time and figure it out versus mm -hmm. giving in immediately and feeling horrible. Yeah, there's actually like a third potential thing that you could do. And obviously, I don't want to get in the way of you and any of your recovery tactics um, or anything you've learned um, from your people who are helping you. Um, but the third one is to partially respond to the binge, but not in the way that you typically do. So instead of deciding like... Um, I guess I've listened to a substantial, substantial number of your podcasts. So I'm remembering things that you've said, like you love the oatmeal and the peanut oh, butter yeah. or something together. Yep. Right. So let's say you had a bowl of that in the morning and uh, do you mind that I'm making it about you? Is oh, that okay? No. Go right ahead. Yeah. I appreciate okay. it. Yeah. <laughs> so um, let's say you had your, you know, usual bowl, your usual portion, and you're like sitting there um, having finished the bowl is empty and you, you get a feeling, you have a feeling you're sad you're empty, you're lonely, you're happy, that tasted so good, you want some more, whatever. Maybe it's all those feelings. <laughs> Oftentimes feelings happen like a lot of different feelings all at once. Mm. So um, this is a hard one and it's not necessarily recommended for everybody, but something you could try is if you're wanting to eat more, allow yourself to eat more, but not in your um, usual way of doing it. Like so typically when people are binging, they have like, a, they start, it often comes with speeding things up and like uh, gobbling things down. Um, not, not in any way to make that sound wrong. Sometimes people do things like that. Sometimes people are hungry and they just eat and they're eating very fast. 
but to try to avoid the typical behavior, but respond to the need to eat a little more and be okay with that and then sit with that discomfort. And I'm not recommending that you go back to old potential behaviors that might be like, you know, really dangerously like consuming too much for yourself where you're really going to be sick, but maybe allowing yourself to go into feeling discomfort um, about having a little more, even if you're not hungry, what if you just feel like eating a little more? That's okay. You're allowed to do that. Exactly. hundred <laughs> percent. Okay. Yeah. You have to have some compassion for yourself. And I think that's, mm-hmm. that, that's, that's a huge difference than a binge because a binge, like you said, like, you know, you feel like you're out of control. You right. just throw like the random, like the most random food combinations together. You don't even care. You're eating really fast. Whereas if you're going to do that, sit with it for a second and then allow yourself to overeat if you really want more. Um, Cause there, there's a difference between overeating and binging and if you allow mm-hmm. yourself to do that, sit with it and recognize, okay, this um, I'll sit with this dis- discomfort, like you said, I'll sit with it and think about how I feel. So I know in the future, this is how I feel for the next time. And that, I think I think that's a great third option. I, I really do love that. So yeah, good. And you know, I mean, I'm telling you, um, and again, for any of your listeners, I have been on my own like kind of journey and odyssey with this as well. And because of all the years of restrictive dieting that I used to do, um, you know, for me, what would happen is, um, and I don't, like I said, I don't really have a diagnosed eating disorder. I have like just a screwed up relationship with food and eating and my body image. That's like sort of, I think more on the societal level, but one thing that I would feel would always be like, you know, if I were on a diet, so to speak, I would just want to eat everything on my plate because it was there. And that was what I was allowed to eat. And so I had to get past that, um, you know, restriction level of things. And at this point in time, now, if I, even with things that I absolutely might've really overeaten just because they felt like things I could not have, unless I was like, off the diet. Um, I'm just, I eat enough until I feel like I don't want it anymore. I really notice that like, I tend to even to this day serve myself more than I eat because I'm like, Oh, I'm, I'm kind of done eating this. And I'm just like tired of it. Mm-hmm. Um, a cue to look for is, are you tired of what you're eating? And that would take taking long enough between bites and taking long enough between swallows to be like, what's my experience of this? The other thing I've found and I've taught other people is, you know, in mindful eating exercises. I don't know if you've ever done a mindful eating exercise. My bet is you have, you probably have. Yeah. Probably, yes. <laughs> yeah. So like that would be where you take a raisin and there's actually some good ones online. Um, John Kabat-Zinn is a good resource. He has like, there's like a script and it's like, you take this raisin, you look at it, you smell it, one raisin, and then you roll it around in your hand. Like it's a whole thing. And then you taste the raisin and you just kind of notice the taste of that thing in a way, like how does your, how does it move around in your mouth and everything? You can do the same thing when you're eating, um, which could be really tiresome on a day-to-day basis, but like trying that when you first start eating, let me see what this bite tastes like. And I often find, and I have found in my own experience and with people I've worked with that the first bite is like amazing and delicious and like, oh my God, I can't, I don't know how I'm ever going to stop eating this thing. And then after a couple more bites or whatever, it's like stops being as great and it's enough. Um, but that's a lot of, I think it really does not like I'm perfect, but it does take a lot of skill and a lot of practice. And I'm sure I've messed it up many times more than I've gotten it right in my lifetime. Oh, don't worry. Me too. A hundred percent. And like <laughs> one of the biggest, yeah. well, 
one of the biggest, I guess, I don't know if this is like an official mindful eating exercise, but this is something that I've developed or trickled into my daily routine every, not every time I eat, but most of the times I eat is I will eat something without being distracted, like being fully present. Mm -hmm. Uh, Like instead of like watching a TV show or like scrolling on social media, I'll just be sitting there with whatever, whatever I'm eating, just staring at nothing or talking to someone um, being fully present has allowed me to kind of recognize not only my home, my fullness and hunger cues a little bit better, but I can sit there and like, like you just mentioned, really like taste the food more and like the mm-hmm. taste feels enhanced. Cause you're so focused on it. Not, you're not focused on watching a TV show or like, you know, anything else you're focused on the food at hand. So you kind of like, for me, I, I, I see that, um, okay, this is how it's tasting now. And yeah, like, like you mentioned over time, like that satisfying feeling of the taste kind of goes away. Um, yeah. Yeah. So I be, be more present has allowed me to kind of feel my fullness cues a little bit better. Cause I used to be someone who could like never leave food on their plate ever. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. Like I, I could never do it. Uh, and part of that was because of those old restrictive mindsets, you know, not wondering or not being able to figure out if I was going to eat again after that. Um, but now that I know it's like, okay, like this is not my last time eating. Um, you don't have to eat everything right now. You can, you know, eat again when you're hungry it's allowed me to put the food down if I'm full and recognize when I'm actually full and it's just helped me out a lot so Mm -hmm. that's great I have two thoughts about that first of all yes I agree with you that is mindful eating exactly what you described so my because mindfulness is simply um, defined as paying attention on purpose without judgment Mm -hmm. so that's all mindfulness is so if you are instead of scrolling your phone which a lot of us do or even um, not like if you're sitting alone, it's ideal moment to just take a few mindful bites. And it's just, you know, you're just eating the food and tasting it and there's nothing else kind of interfering or distracting you. Right. Um, But my other thought for you is, and this is, you know, something that you might want to do, or I could help you out with or whatever. You might want to try a mindful eating exercise on your podcast with your listeners. Like you could read out a mindful eating kind of passage. I can get it to you so you can do it because that might be really fun. You could tell them, get your raisin, let's get ready, let's do it, you know, because I I think it's really um, both a lesson in mindfulness and a lesson in like tasting things in a way that I don't think that we necessarily learn. It's definitely not something we learn in kindergarten, you know? (laughs) Uh, Um, That's actually a really great idea. I'm gonna gonna write that down now, actually. I'll, I'll email you like a script or something. If you like, if you prompt me to do that, I'll send it to you. Oh, that would be excellent. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So another question I have for you is say, I'm sure this has happened to you before. One of your clients uh, has a moment of relapse or they fall back into a harmful behavior. What is your, like, like what's the next move from your end? How do you help them get back not get back on track. I hate that phrase, but like get back to mm-hmm. uh, the path of recovery and not dwell on the relapse. Yeah. Well, there's a few things. Of course, the first one is forgiveness and compassion for yourself. Um, if you have somebody in your life who's supporting your recovery, it's a very good idea to talk to them because typically the voice that we have in our head and um, people with eating disorders often even worse, um, is the very, very critical voice that tells us we're bad, we're disgusting, we'll never get better, um, you're a failure, you're a loser, like all those things, right? Um, things we would never say to our best friend or to our you know, closest cousin or sibling or whatever, mom or dad. Um, so seek out 
outside reassurance would be one way to do it. But if there's not somebody there, at least trying to write down, like journal your thoughts about yourself and then look at them and see how critical they are and whether it's a letter that you would send to someone you care about. So that's the first thing, compassion, forgiveness. Yeah. Um, okay. And then the next thing that I would do that we do um, from the perspective of DBT, from dialectical behavioral therapy and other um, behavioral sort of points of view as well is to do a behavioral analysis. So it's like you've forgiven yourself, you've found compassion for yourself. And now what you're going to do is look at that moment where things went off track. I, I agree with you. I don't love the like on track, off track, but like where you where you return to behaviors that you have tried to leave in the past and try to see what led into those things. Oftentimes you can find out, like maybe you got an upsetting phone call. Maybe you got a bad grade. Um, Maybe your girlfriend broke up with you. I don't know. You know, it could be like as big as that, or it could be, you just saw a magazine with somebody who had the, had the, has the shape that you always wanted. And you're like, I'll never get there. And that you can kind of go through the thoughts. So the behavioral analysis is really good. That's also what a therapist like me can really help with. Um, and it's something that I do with people a lot. Like what happened right before this? And let's track it back to where things sort of went in a way that you didn't want them to go. Gotcha. So it's like, you're essentially like working backwards a little bit. You're mm-hmm. and Okay. I like that. The behavioral analysis. I like that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it really does work. And actually it allows you, if you've given yourself enough time and support, to be compassionate and be like, oh, wow, like, look at me. I think I was really upset. And what did I do? Um, I skipped dinner because I felt like I didn't deserve to eat. Or um, I ate a lot of dinner and then a lot afterwards for the whole night because I felt like I deserved to be really uncomfortable in my body or whatever. Wow. That, that's all That's all great advice. I'm sure that's <laughs> How many clients have you worked with, you know, off the top of your head? <laughs> Oh my God. In my lifetime, I, um, I have no idea. That's a, oh my God. I don't think I've ever asked me that before. Probably, um, you know, okay. Let me limit it to outpatient therapy because, um, outpatient therapy I've done, um, less, uh, years. Um, I'm going by the hundreds. I don't know, at least a thousand. Um, Yeah. And people are really much more the same than they are unique. And I don't mean that in a negative way. I mean that the things that I say to most people seem to work for most people because it's like, we're all just people. We're all people facing uncertainty and difficulties and self-criticism. One thing I'm very fond of saying, and I saw it in one of your videos, you didn't say it exactly like this. This is on TikTok. You guys got to go look and see his TikTok and look for this video. But it's like, I say to my patients, what do you think is going to be on your gravestone? Is it going to say she weighed a hundred pounds? <laughs> she was really skinny. He was really buff. He was super cut. You know, he went to the gym for three hours a day. No, those things are not going to be there, right? What's going to be on there. And then we talk about that, not to, <laughs> not to try to bring up thoughts of death, but like, what do you want to be remembered for? Do you want to be remembered for having a six pack? Is that what is the thing? This most important body. <laughs> That's right, my yeah. question. I know, like that. I, exactly. I know exactly what video you're talking about too. I um <laughs> it's a good one. I you should repost it <laughs> when you, you put this <laughs> podcast up. <laughs> um, what I this is do, the video of an estimate. <laughs> um what I do sometimes <laughs> when I think about that kind of stuff, I think about that stuff all the time because it's so true. It's like I just picture myself um 
or like ways like if I'm ever having like a bad day with food or anything like that I just picture myself counting calories in a retirement home and I'm I'm immediately just like back to like I'm just like is, this is ridiculous like in the long term does it really matter and it doesn't because I'm not gonna mm-hmm. be in a retirement home 60 plus years old counting the calories of the meals that the nurses bring me that's just not gonna happen so like yeah. what's the point yeah. yeah I mean it's true and I also want to point out to you that people suffer with eating disorders throughout their lifetime <laughs> and when, like I said, I used to work at, um, in a cancer center and, um, I worked a lot with people who had breast cancer. Um, and I would have people come into my office and I would say, um, you know, what are you wanting to accomplish? What do you want to do while you're, you know, dealing with your, uh, cancer issues? And more times than not, people would say, I want to lose weight. And I would be like, no, that is not what you want. (laughs) Like that is astonishing, but it would happen all the time. Let's talk about priorities, right? We're we're looking at people who are in a life-threatening situation and they're concerned with their weight. That's That's scary and sad. Yeah, I would say it's unbelievable, but honestly, I I believe that that's just Mm. how we're just conditioned to, wow. Yeah, so you will be one of the lucky ones, I hope, if you wind up, um, you know, in a retirement community or whatever, who will be like out there being like, Hey, everybody, like, let's have the pizza party. We, you know, you only live once. Let's do it. You know, extra oatmeal on the plates. (laughs) Yeah. I will be that guy. I'll be that person. That's good. And obviously you, you know, I, it, it's clear, you know, in your, I mean, you're pretty young. Like I'm like, I could be your mom. (laughs) I'm like 52 years old practically. And you know, but in your, the short time that you've worked on all of this, you've gathered so much information and you've reinforced so much of that information by teaching it to others in, in medical parlance, we say, learn it, do it, teach it. Mm-hmm. So you learned about it, you did it like your recovery, right? And recovery is an ongoing kind of process. It can come up and come down. And so even as you're doing your podcast and your work on TikTok and wherever you go in the future as a nutritionist or whatever it is that you're going to do, you know, you, things may be up and down for you, but that doesn't make you a fake. It just makes you human. You know, that's the way it is. I've had to learn that myself um, over the years because there's a lot of imposter syndrome when you become a professional. Like, am I, are they, why is anybody going to listen to me kind of stuff? <laughs> because you're, yeah, because you've learned and you've grown and you're trying to share it. Um, and it's one of the best things you can do. It's also really reinforcing your recovery as well, which is mm-hmm. great. Right. Yeah. yeah, I say all the time, recovery is, it's not linear. Mm-mm. It's Mm-mm. not linear, we're human. Right. I guess the word recovery is not really even the best kind of language we could use. Like, you know, um, I don't know what would, I've never really kind of thought of what better word, but recovery is sort of, to me, like for mental health issues or for, and, and eating disorders and so on, like anything where people are like struggling in a behavioral health kind of manner, saying recovery is sort of like an endpoint. It says like, oh, you're done. But like, we both know, right? you're not done. Like every day you have to face that refrigerator, right? You got to decide what you're going to do. And every day you have to face the inside of yourself. You have to decide how long you're going to spend at the gym. Is is gym going to be the punishment or are you going to be like making your body feel good? Are you exercising because you're trying to burn off calories or are you exercising because it's good for your heart and for your bones and for your muscles? So you got to like always kind of keep that in the back of your mind. Like what's my motivation here? Right. I, I love that. Exactly. You 
yeah, it's not, it's not because I used to say like there are times where I'd say, oh yeah, I'm fully recovered, but now I'm not even like I don't say that anymore mm-hmm. because you're right, like you're not, you're it's always gonna be there in some way, shape, or form. It's just how you act on it and how and 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 how the choices you make become different than what they were whenever yeah. you're at your worst. I feel like yeah. I keep talking about cancer, but I guess it's on my mind this morning for whatever reason. But um, uh, in in cancer parlance, you say um, it used to be people would say you're in remission, but now the more popular phrase is no evidence of disease. Hmm. So for for like somebody who's dealing with an eating disorder or other behavioral issue, it could be no evidence of behavioral difficulty, you know, and that is really not any one day. That's like, is he, um, if he's somebody who is anorexic and underweight, is he somebody who has, is maintaining a weight that's healthy for him and eating on a regular basis? Or is he somebody who um, had a binge eating disorder um, and is generally speaking kind of having health, not healthful, I don't like that word, but like meals that are satisfying and not struggling too much with stopping uh, eating at a place that feels comfortable and satisfying. Right. Wow. That's, that's all <laughs> stuff. Vanessa. I, I, I really appreciate you joining me and, and sharing all this. I learned so much in this hour we've been talking and I'm sure the, the listeners have as well. Is there anything else you'd like to add before uh, we call it a day? Um, I, well, I want to wish everybody good luck. If you're listening to this, you probably have um, a reason. And I think that there's a lot of great information on this podcast, not only um, today, but like scrolling back through and just sort of listening to Bobby's journey. Um, If you want to contact me, you can go to my website. I think it'll probably be in the show notes. Um, I, I see people in Arizona, but I also will do coaching across state lines. I would love to hear from anybody. People frequently tell me like if they see me on social media, they're like, you know, if I get, they get in touch with me, they're like, I was really nervous. I didn't know if I could contact you. I mean, this is why I, (laughs) I do these things so I can make it clear that I am available. So don't be afraid to reach out to me or to someone else um, for help because um, as professionals, we're not here to judge. We're really here to get in there in the trenches and really help you um, to succeed. Excellent. Amazing stuff. Vanessa, thank you so much for taking time out of your day to come and join me. Um, I, like, like we just said, everything that she just mentioned will be in the description below. So please check her out, go to her website, make an appointment with her. She's great. <laughs> Vanessa, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. Of course. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Bobby podcast. If you found this episode relatable, if you resonated with it in any way, if it made you feel less alone, that's truly amazing. That's incredible Um, because that's the goal of this podcast. I really want to make and help others feel less alone in whatever they're going through because this this stuff is tough. You know, like ED recovery is tough and I never want anyone to feel alone in this because I know there were times I felt alone. So um, I never want anyone to feel alone. So if you um, found this episode enjoyable, Make sure to subscribe to this podcast. Check out my TikToks. Um, I will leave all those links in the description. I really appreciate you listening. You're all the best. Have a great rest of your day.